On the show today, we have Dr. Taylor Burroughs. She is a, an expert with relationships. How are you? I'm doing well. Thank you, Evan. By the way, uh, what part of the country are you in? I'm in Miami. You're Miami. So for the time being, yeah. I'm not sure how long I'm going to be here, but I'll be here for uh, at least a few weeks. Is that where you're from originally? No, I'm from the Cayman Islands. Just moved to the States again. Wow. <laughs> uh, like the end of May. So my mother lives here. Okay, cool. So you have over 14 years of clinical mental health marriage and family experience. And um, with that in mind, since you know, you've, you've counsel counseled lots of people, what do you think is an ideal life? And what is the kind of life that people should, uh, should aim for? Well, that's different for everybody because it depends on your personality and what you define as important to you, what your priorities are and your values are. So really, it's, it's something that I work on with clients in order to figure out what it is that they're striving for and maybe clarify what makes them feel fulfilled. Like It's kind of just, you know, at the end of your days <laughs> or at the end of, literally at the end of the day when you put your head on the pillow or at the end of your life. What will you be proud of? What are you going to look back and say, you know what? I made the best use of my time and I really lived well and I couldn't have done it any better. Okay. So it, it really depends on what people are really aiming for. But I mean, how do people avoid toxic relationships? Because I think this, this kind of helps and aids in having an ideal life, right? Yeah. I, what I like to use is a little formula that I came up with and that's why I focus on ideal because it's it's a standard that you strive for. Obviously, we can't reach perfection, nor would we really want to, but it's a horizon that you should be walking toward and working on every day. So in, in a sense, that's what the ideal means and developing yourself in an ideal way, attracting your ideal partner, and then developing this ideal life that I talk about. So Toxic relationships are absolutely, they're going to be major hurdles and obstacles along the way, but they're usually reflective of challenges that you're having internally. Like if you're having any kind of residual problems or issues that you need to sort through, uh, dysfunctions, distress, maybe old wounds, then that's going to come out. I mean, there's a few things that you can do to really grow, um, relationships are one of them, you know, so people will put themselves in a situation that's pretty toxic, uh, really, because they're trying to correct some of these distorted experiences that maybe they had in the past. And that's definitely not always the, the best way to sort through your baggage. And uh, right. So I mean, so I'm, I'm, sure, I'm assuming there's people who who do want to avoid toxic relationships, and they have worked on themselves, and they have fixed origin of family traumas but then they meet someone who in a way has a mask and, and it's kind of a fake and uh, uh, during their relationship everything is fine for the first maybe six months to a year and then they drop that mask and in reality they're like narcissistic or predatory people how do how can people avoid that kind of stuff well if you're talking about people who have clinical levels of dysfunction like that's going to be a different subset so if we're talking about literally narcissistic personality disorder or borderline personality disorder who are more people who are more predatory whether consciously or not um, that's few and far between for the most part a lot of people use the term narcissist quite loosely so we have to be careful with that and, and oftentimes it's, it's 
mis misused, you know, it's applied when it really just means, um, you know, the person is kind of uh, bossy or they're very particular, they like their way, or maybe they're moody and they, they get pretty disheveled when things don't go their way. And so it's sometimes more of the, what I like to call it, it's the relationship might have the disease and not oh, the particular person, right? So that's one way to externalize the issue because you put that person with somebody else and they'd have a completely different, you know, sort of appearance. They're, they're, they look fine, but it was that dynamic. Okay. I mean, what do you think about the the idea that people say that you kind of bring yourself into the relationship, though, too, into any relationship? So if you had a toxic relationship yeah. in the past and you go with someone who's not toxic, but you still kind of bring those wounds, you, even though it's not as toxic as the one prior to that, it's still something's added to that mix, right? Well, sure. I don't want to uh, make it sound like people ask for these situations. I mean, a lot of it is subconscious material that's happening and playing out in our lives and there definitely are cases where people accidentally end up into in a toxic situation whether a relationship or just life circumstance in general and so when that happens it should be easy to spot if you have done the work for yourself if you have really clear boundaries and standards values belief systems vision you're not really gonna let somebody derail you to the extent that someone like that may. I mean, usually kids is what, bringing kids into the picture is what complicates matters because then you're thinking about somebody else right. and benefit of, do I stay with the, the person and try to contain the situation or do I, you know, irritate them even more right. and not even have any proximity in, in, in taking care of the children and then they have full reigns. So a lot of people will just play damage control in that situation, stay and try to contain it which is understandable, but if there are no other sort of um, things playing in, in the mix, then a lot of times people will sh who are healthy would say, okay, this is erratic, terrible behavior that I'm not going to allow in my life and walk away. But if we're talking about domestic violence, that's also a different scenario. So we have to kind of clarify what, what level of dysfunction we're, we're referring to. I know, uh, going back to what you said earlier, is like, Lots of people uh, easily classify anyone they dislike as narcissistic or whatever. But, and you know, ha they have to be clinically diagnosed. But, for, you know, for people who are out there in the wild, per se, uh, engaging in these different relationships, trying to find the right one, you know, they're not, they're not experts in, in, in diagnosing people or anything. I mean, what are the kind of tools they can use as an amateur? I mean, obviously, they can't take everyone they date into, like, a clinical psychologist and have them validate or anything. So <laughs> what can they use, like, out in the wild? Uh, so, Well, you know, your intuition is the best tool that you have. So you should absolutely be trying to use, use that on a regular basis. And it starts with very small things. And you just learn to trust your gut. But you can kind of tell the hair on the back of your neck as a... Uh, you know, sort of visual as that is, and it's real. Like you kind of have this guttural response to to things that are really, uh, you know, they're uncomfortable. They don't make sense. They feel icky, and so you have to really pay attention to that feeling. And I have been teaching that to even little children for the longest time in regards to avoiding child abuse, right? Or whether it's familial or a stranger that's trying to target them, you really have to to use that and trust it. And a lot of times people just, they dismiss the signs. Uh, 
And if you're wondering that you should take your potential partner into a psychologist to get them tested, that's usually a good sign that something is wrong. So I would take a step back and do some serious vetting at that point. Okay. And do you recommend marriage uh, for young boys, especially how the, uh, the divorce rates are skyrocketing and the climate in family courts and when it comes to the custody and all this kind of stuff? Do you, do you still think it's a great idea as a relationship coach? Well, I do believe that family values are extremely important. And the idea of a healthy marriage is very beneficial. I mean, just developing oneself as a human being to the level that, you know, you have that attachment and intimacy with an intimate partner and you build something, you know, really special together in regards to creating a household and a family and a legacy. And the values that are entrenched in that are what protect people in developing themselves as a healthy individual. And it models them on, you know, healthy relationships and discipline and work ethic and, you know, what's good and what's what's bad and evil and all of those really important morals that should be coming from the home. But, I mean, we're, we're not even talking about that. We're just talking about the actual ceremony of, of marriage and the institution of it and how it's been eroded because of these uh, civil matters and the legal issues involved. And I absolutely agree that it is a, a bad, dysfunctional state of affairs the way that it's being used against the men in a lot of sometimes situations. I mean, too. obviously there's good, and, and sometimes women, but you know, we're, we used to see a lot of women stuck in these toxic environments and abusive environments, and they didn't feel empowered to leave the, the home with, with anything to survive with. And so we've overcorrected now and are more punitive towards men that are, are not doing anything wrong. And so we need to make sure that there is a more just and fair system, but also we need to encourage people to honor the intention of marriage right. and that, that we've lost that. So I think we need to get back to that, make divorce probably easier and make getting married harder. Right. Cause I know in Sweden, uh, I believe that is, I might, I might have the wrong country, but I know that if you get divorced, um, nobody gets anything and there is no, there isn't a money windfall. And so divorce rates are pretty much non-existent there. There should be definitely changes in the law to remove the incentive to do those kinds of things. Um, on, on, the, on this subject, why do you think divorce rates are so high? Um, well, I think that people are marrying the wrong person. And, and that's why I focus so much of my work on the vetting process. Uh, because people just don't know how to date People are, they're too impulsive, they're too dependent, they're too needy, they're not able to regulate their own emotions, so they really just latch on to the first option that they get, and especially now with the sort of delayed timeline of women not marrying or having children until way into their late 30s, um, you know, that's sort of contributing to the problem because then the desperation sets in. They realize that time is running out and they'll just marry, you know, the first sort of viable option. And then that usually ends up in a divorce. Right. Right. So, I mean, that's just one scenario. There's lots of other reasons. But ultimately, in every situation where I've done marital therapy with a couple who ended up divorcing, 
it was because they came so late into the room to, to work on the problems, but they just married an, a person that was incompatible with them. So my three components of that are um, desire, logic, and love. And oftentimes you'll see people marry someone they're highly desirous of. There's so much desire, but there's not really logic or there's not a lot of that companionate love. Like there's not that proper alignment of values and compatibility. So you'll see those burning really hot for a while, but then fizzling and, and then they'll, they'll separate and potentially divorce as well. So usually one of those three elements or more are missing. So people focus on the wrong things, marry the wrong person, and it's just not a compatible match. And do you think uh, the reason why men and women kind of trivialize relationships and kind of like you said, that kind of latch on to whoever's desirable at the moment, uh, the reason for that is because of uh, birth control. And in a way, birth control has trivialized pregnancy, right? Because before, uh, when you would get pregnant without uh, these contraceptives, there is a chance that you could die as a woman because of the uh, of how sensitive and how um, how uh, pregnancy could have a lot of health issues. Now that anyone mm -hmm. could just have an abortion or take a pill, it's kind of trivialized that whole uh, sacred uh, part of a relationship. So maybe that's why they just latch on to anyone and then see where it goes from there. Well, a lot of people would argue that it's the pair, bond pair bonding capacity of women, right? Because if we're we're seeing a lot of women in comparison to the you know earlier times having higher numbers of sexual partners and being more open to casual sex behaviors that the more partners a woman has that they'll have you know less likelihood of creating that proper attachment secure attachment with a partner for marriage and you know there's a lot of validity to that and but it also goes for men as well so with men I, I, and I've been talking about this a lot lately because people feel that I'm being hypocritical, but there are some biological differences between men and women. If that's really? a newsflash. Oh, yeah. Wow, I never knew that. <laughs> so people have to realize that, you know, there's, there's different layers, right? And so the first one is the biological element. And men are, are biologically created um, in a different way. They have more of a propensity to look towards variety and to to be, be able to procreate with as many potential um women as possible now socializing you know throughout the the different centuries you know we've become different and and now it's important to see that men can have that period usually you know 20s early 30s where they may be more promiscuous and that can actually help them discover what's the best partner for them but it should be a temporary stage in their development and eventually the whole purpose should be to find somebody that you can make the mother of your children and commit to in order to progress so uh so if women have more partners their pair bonding mechanism becomes weakened and weakened over time Generally speaking, right? I mean, if it's, 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 it's really important for a woman because there's a lot of also controversy about can you reform uh, after being exposed to all these dysfunctional behaviors? And, and absolutely, you can change. I mean, I'm in the business of change. That's why I went to school. That's what I, why I got my PhD so that I could help people feel that they can change 
uh, as you know their behaviors and, and create a better life for themselves. Now, that does not mean that you should deny the consequences of your choices in the past. And that's, that's the issue that we're seeing is that a lot of people are brushing things under the rug and putting themselves in a state of denial. And that's creating a lot of dysfunctions internally, which then play out in even worse behaviors and relationships. So as long as someone is willing to admit their mistakes, admit, you know, how things have affected them, whether it was their fault or not, and really make a concerted effort to correct that and go forward in a healthy way, then absolutely you can. So I don't want it to sound hopeless for, right. for those out there. Right. Um, I almost feel like there's an invisible component that's always kind of out of reach of reprimand and i feel i feel like uh when these relationships go crazy or they're toxic uh you know murder suicides custody battles all this really crazy stuff that's going on not only in the u.s but in europe and australia and other countries canada i feel like parents are kind of out of reach for punishment i feel like they should also bear the burden of raising good children i almost feel like all these things happen and the parents are, well, your parents must have done this, but they never named them. They're never held responsible for any of this stuff. What do you think about that? I agree. I at least feel that parents should be, by being held accountable, they should at least have to go through education and counseling support. It should be mandated. And a lot of, a lot of families that I, that I see, the children are just sort of brought in almost by their, their, their neck, you know, figuratively. And, you know, the parents will be like, fix them. I'm going mad. Like, help me, you know. But a lot of the times it's you have to reframe it and bring the parents back in and try to sort of smooth them into the idea that, okay, this is a family system issue and maybe you need to look at how you can make some changes. And so a lot of times it's really more of a parental issue and the child's, their behavior is the symptom of the problem. So that's what we do a lot of times in family work. So I would like to see parents being held accountable as well, but I don't want it to sound punitive. I want it to sound like it's supportive and it's educational. Um, I find a lot of parenting courses and programs that are done really well are very effective. And so we just need to have that encouragement and uh, enforcement really to get them plugged into the the system so that they're involuntarily doing it. They have to do it, so they better get around to it. Um, but a lot of times I think parents are feeling extremely overwhelmed and powerless in the situation, uh, because of the way social media has affected children and they just don't know how to control it. And maybe, you know, they don't have a strong system in the house, like a different, like if this, if the father is a strong sort of disciplinarian and the mother is a very sort of nurturing person and they're, they have a healthy parental system then that's a much more healthy uh, household and family that can make ground rules and guidelines and boundaries and supervise their child. But we have a lot of unhealthy homes with parent systems that that are not working properly. Actually brings me to my next question. Um, What do you think about religious communities like the Amish, who have very low crime and very low divorce rates, um, that their religious frameworks... Uh, should be taken account by uh, by society at large. I mean, we should take notes from them because they kind of ha- have like this mm-hmm. this societal framework to to kind of control that, if you will. You know. Yeah, definitely. That's always a it's a it's a resource. You know, it's something that helps develop uh, human behavior along like a, a very sort of 
I don't want to say controlled in, in an arbitrary way, but just right. it's it's you, it's a clarified system. You know what are what's expected of you when you don't have discipline, but you have freedom. Right. Everything sort of goes awry. Right. So it creates that structure that children need, and the way things are, it's just it's a lack of structure that we're faced with. So you can't really force religion you know you can't like you know right what do you call it legislate it right absolutely (laughs) but i mean it seems like society could take notes from their societies from their like subcultures but um you know i'm not i'm not particularly religious or anything but i think it's interesting how they have very low divorce rates and very low crime Mm -hmm. it's it's what i mm -hmm. what i think would be helpful is you know if we see some modern examples some more modern examples of, of families from those types of communities. And I don't want to pigeonhole it into one particular right. thing, but I know um, some people on, on Twitter that come from uh, families like that. And they're, you would never know that they were from uh, you know, a hometown that was Mormon right. or Amish or whatever, but you know, they're, they're cool. <laughs> they are, you know, they're, they're people that you, you want to be friends right. with. They dress normally. They, right. Like all the stereotypes in your mind right. come, come trembling, come, what am I trying to say? Crumbling, Crumbling down. down. There you go. <laughs> and, yes. And then you're like, oh, well, okay, it's not so weird, right. you know, in my, in that sort of myth that you have that people that live in those communities are very sort of, um, I don't know, like they have a haunting feeling about them, right. like they're being brainwashed. Right. Like that's the myth that we're told. Right, right. But when you, when you see a normal example of a family that's just really healthy and happy, right. And, and I, you know, I think that's what mainstream North America needs to see. Right. No, no, that's a really good point. Um, now, at the end of the day, if you take a uh, two people who like each other and they're in a relationship and it's healthy, and one was poor and one is rich, does money matter? Does money make relationships better? Or does it not really influence anything? As in a hypothetical... Um, like throwing money at them, well, like mean, giving does, them an opportunity. I mean, yeah, like if if uh, does does money make a difference in uh, relationships overall <laughs> happiness? Well, yeah, I do think it does. Uh, and, uh, I don't remember who said this recently, so I don't mean to be stealing what he said, but it's money gives you freedom, and freedom gives you happiness. But at the same time, I would interject and say freedom plus discipline. Right. So not just having blanket freedom. But you have to know how to spend that money. If you just blow that money, that's not going to give you freedom. Right. I've heard. I've heard another phrase that says, uh, "Money isn't the you know wouldn't was well, not going to give you happiness, but it's surely not going to make you sad." <laughs> <laughs> that's true as well. But a lot of the problems that you see with couples, even whether they're married or not, have to do with money. Right. You know, whether it's it's finances. And household chores is another one, which is really gender roles. So issues around gender roles, issues around finances are huge matters that need to be resolved and uh, hopefully compatible before they settle down into marriage. And do you think women prefer nice guys or bad boys? Well, they want both. They want everything. They want the whole package. Really? And yeah, I mean, I, I, I joke, but there's so much controversy about that as well. So, you know, I'm, I speak a lot about gender roles and it's important for women to be aware of the unhealthy tendencies that they have to basically pursue that bad boy in order to feel passionate and alive and desired and all of that. But recognizing that, okay, if he's not 
if he's not a good provider, if you can't respect him, if he doesn't have that integrity and that good character that's going to make for a good father of your child, then you need to just recognize that this is a, a more superficial, you know, f- sexual fling and decide if you want to involve yourself in that or if you want to find someone that has elements of both, someone that's going to stimulate your desire and you're, you know, you're attracted to them naturally, not just you're negotiating your attraction with things that you say that you want, but you just have that natural chemistry with them. But they're also a really good person and you respect them and you know that they would raise children with you very well. And I don't know if this has ever happened to you, but maybe family members or friends, you'll, you'll know someone like a guy or a girl and they keep picking incredibly bad people, right? Like someone that was raised in a foster care home or someone that's, that was abused as a child and say they'll, they'll get over that toxic relationship and it was very traumatic and they'll go and they'll find that same person again all over again, someone else that has the same characteristics. You know, they were in a foster care, they were abused and they come from that really bad um, kind of situation. How do you, how do you get the message across to them that, Although that feels familiar to you, that, that kind of whatever that flavor you might call it is, um, it's wrong. How, how do they get, like, I guess off of that addictive drug? I mean, would it surprise you if I said that you can't force them to? They really have to come to terms with deciding to make some serious changes. And any therapist or any counselor, anyone who's trying to help someone cannot force someone to do that. So... Just educating them is the key, is, is sharing information, um, trying to sort of reframe what they're doing in a different way and reflecting that to them I, so that maybe they can see it. Because my experience is mm-hmm. when, you, when you try to kind of educate them or you kind of give them like a perspective, they're in denial. They're like, no, like they're, they're they kind of, kind of only could see that situation as the most desirable one and no other option. And I think it's what you mentioned earlier in the show, which is if these childhood traumas that they haven't resolved and they need to. Um, yeah. mm-hmm. It's the corrective experience. That's what they're looking for. We play out these unhealthy, destructive patterns in our lives over and over and over again until we learn the lessons. But ultimately, when we're in, a, in, we're in an unhealthy, immature, psychological developmental stage we're really looking for someone to rescue us or really looking for that um, parent that wasn't there that didn't help uh, guide us in the right way and so we almost look look for partners to rescue us in a similar way and so when you recognize that uh, I don't want any more of these experiences I need to just parent myself and do what I wish my father or mother did for me back then for myself now okay (laughs) <laughs> no, it's a, it's, a, it's a good point. But do you believe that people who have borderline personality disorder can recover at some point? Or is it a lifelong condition? I've had some borderline personality or person su- struggling with it reach out to me and really want me to talk more about this topic because they feel uh, that people are really shaming them for their diagnosis. And those would be the people that I would say uh, are more likely to recover from it. And, and, for, and for those who don't know, mm-hmm. what is borderline personality disorder? Well, borderline personality disorder is, is 
personality disorders in general, the reason or the way that they're distinguished from general clinical disorders is that they don't come on all of a sudden. They're not, they're more of a pervasive, that's the word that they use to diagnose it, they're a pervasive behavioral pattern that has always existed since like 18, basically. They don't start, they don't diagnose them until you're technically an adult. But you'll see the patterns uh, in childhood, especially. Um, it's, it's, they just don't diagnose them until they've formed their identity a little bit better. So it's a lifelong tendency to be dysfunctional. And so borderline personality is very dysfunctional in regards to relationships in particular. They will swing from, you know, really adoring and idolizing someone to absolutely hating them. And it's this, it's not just mood swings because people will confuse that with bipolar, it's more of a specific attachment dysfunction and unhealthy relationships, uh, risky behavior, uh, threatening, aggressive, volatile uh, interactions. And they make for very dangerous parents, basically, because they're really exposing their children to a lot of upheaval and maybe not violence. I don't want to accuse them Do of they ever all being violent. Do against their uh, kids? Uh, well... They're, they're definitely exposing their children to violent behaviors because when they lash out, it's, it's basically domestic violence when they're, they're yelling at the top of their lungs, they're cursing, they're maybe flailing and throwing things, and they may even be, you know, hitting and kicking and all of that sort of stuff. And so that's domestic violence, whether they're doing it directly to the children or they're doing it in front of the children. So, and, and of course, you know, if you're going to be that type of person, then I would assume that they've exposed their children to that directly right. too when they're parenting because they lack that patience. Right. They lack that ability. I've met a few people like that and it seems like, you know, I'm, I'm an amateur obviously, but it seems like their parents enable that behavior and kind of uh, even inflicted that kind of Yeah, I know. I've them. talked to a lot of men, a lot of gentlemen that have reached out and, and they're just very, very much against, you know, borderline personality disordered women because they ruined their lives or they were their mothers and they were very violent. So I have heard some extreme stories of, of violence, like literally taking out a gun, shooting at someone, uh, taking out a knife. Uh, I just don't want to paint the picture that all people with borderline personality disorder are like that. There's going to be subsets of, of violent uh, clinical diagnoses and there's going to be some people that are not violent, but it can be. Right. Okay, are there any other topics that you want to talk about that I missed? Well, I know I, I, I focus strongly on relationships, but you know I'm trained generally in mental health, marriage and family, but now I'm, I'm not functioning under my licenses anymore. I'm just working as an online coach. Okay. One of the reasons that I, that I do that is because I, I really believe in the values that are helpful, like for a, like a good life and knowing right from wrong. And I think that now healthcare in general, but mental health, it's they're very sensitive and they don't want to step on anybody's toes and tell them what to do or tell them what to think. And I feel that it's why really, is that, by the way? What is that spirit of not being straightforth with information and implementing a a great uh, program to get rid of these problems. Where does that spirit come from? Well, 
I can only speak for North America because I haven't had any 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 experience or exposure to outside like of okay. of North America. But for us, I, I would say it's heavily influenced by you know so, so social dynamics and politics that are happening in the times. It's you just, mean political you, correctness. Yeah, you can't really you can't really separate the two. Um, the intention is to help people, but it's really become more of an enabling and. If you can't tell a person that's coming to you for help that what they're doing is unhealthy and you're a health professional, then something is broken in the system. It almost seems like what's wrong in these families is echoed in broader society, which doesn't allow people to actually get better. That's right. Yes. So sometimes we do have to call people out, hold, hold them accountable and point them in the right direction. We can't just say, you pick a direction. Which direction would you like to go in? Right. Yeah, <laughs> so I, that's, like you agree? People. Yeah, it is. I, and so I, I get a lot of flack from colleagues uh, because they, they're sort of embedded and indoctrinated into that way of thinking. And they, they just call me conservative or something. But it's not even that. Like, I don't identify that way. But I have grown and evolved through my life and professional experiences. But I have to tell you, becoming an entrepreneur and working on your own terms is a huge life changer. You see things a lot differently when you have that freedom and you create the structures that help to propel you towards a successful life. Right. I'm, I'm sure that when you're working in a, in a clinical setting, uh, there's probably guidelines that don't allow you to actually help people because of these social barriers, if you will. Yeah. And I mean, I, I absolutely agree with having ethics and, and regulations for a lot of things. But we also have to t allow adults to be adults and make decisions for themselves. You know, we are over-regulating too many things. And so... Someone, I, w I was telling the story the other day, it was funny. I just got into Facebook groups okay. and I had this battle with this very traditional therapist who said I was being closed-minded, but he was the one that wanted to throw me out of the group because he didn't like my opinion. <laughs> I, I, I'm, I'm always shocked by people like that who are so tolerant, but they're not tolerant of your views. Exactly. So, you know, you look up the word bigot and that's well, exactly that what, it really is. what it is. what it is, yeah, bigot, I know, so. people with, who, who uh, think the word bigot means something to do with racism, it, it's not about racism. It's about only liking your point of view and invalidating everybody else's point of view, e even if the information in there is could be beneficial to you. It's kind of almost like ignorance, you know. That's right, yeah. But they don't, they're in denial. So they only denial. see it that I way. I know a lot because, of those. Yeah, they're, I think it's kind of a little bit of self self-benefit, like it's kind of a feedback loop. Right. Um, and it just causes... It's almost like a self-coddling system. <laughs> exactly. I, I think you're right. It's, it's, to me, it's just treating adults like they're children. You have to sort of tiptoe around them, don't talk to them straight, um, and not giving them the authority to make decisions for themselves. And, you know, I think that's very patronizing. Yeah. And a lot of people, a lot of people agree that uh, some therapists that are like, not all therapists are like that. But it's, there's a, a, big, a big group, a big number of therapists that are very, very much like that. So Yeah, uh, I mean, people mm -hmm. have made the argument that coddling children or doing this kind of stuff is abusive in, in many ways. Because if you don't, 
talk to them like adults and start training them to be adults and think like adults when they become adults you know they won't know what it is to be an adult and they're they're kind of like in this infantile mindset for the rest of their lives mhm yeah i mean you have to you have to allow them to take a certain level of risk you know w- whether it's and it's not about you know putting them in harm's way but the little things they really do help to teach them cause and effect and you hold them accountable for the consequences of their behaviors so it is important to make sure that you're creating rules that you're re- you're um, enforcing right so that there it's not like um, they can just get away with anything and then they don't learn the lesson so you have to create rules that you will enforce and not just have some lofty you know theoretical rules and right. then never implement them and what do you what do you say about because it's really interesting what you said earlier about the test you know if you had like some traumatic event you know you're more likely to get a disease or have personality issues what about those kids who grew up in very wealthy families where the reverse was true where they got coddled a lot and some of them commit crimes or get addicted to drugs what is their achilles heel yeah, I would say they have more of that freedom without the structure. Oh, and just to bring sense. that back in, right? So they have, they're more spoiled. So they are acting like immature adolescent types. They rebel, they escape. Um, they don't really need to work for things. So they don't understand responsibility. And those are the things that the hard work, work ethic, right. integrity, being honest, all of those characteristics, they're not, they're not really, we don't draw them out in normal society anymore. You know, it, it's, just, I don't know what it is. If everything is just transparent and anything goes, people are just not really uh, holding on to these types of family values or morals and standards, which like you said, comes from, you know, that close knit sort of community uh, environment, whether it's your family, your religion, your church, your neighborhood, or something like that. So, you know, globalization has a lot of negative effects, but that's kind of what money does, right? It gives you so many options right. that, that you know, you're not really focusing on what's important. Um, anyway, that's kind of how I see it. But yeah. it's, it's pervasive across, you know, issues. People in general, they're, they're aging, but they're not maturing. So people might be 25, 30, and they still have no clue what they stand for. They're basically just regurgitating whatever's on the news, but they haven't taken the time. We don't have any sort of rites of passage anymore. Um, they're, they're not really digging deep and reflecting on what matters to them and what, what they want to stand for in life and, and fight for ultimately. Yeah. It almost seems like we live in a society again, it just seems that way um, where everyone's a victim or everyone's uh, special in a very strange way. And uh, it almost seems like that's kind of the society we're living in now, where everyone's like a victim of some sort of, like a, some sort of an abuse or something like that. Yeah, everything is being termed trauma. Uh, you know, people are, 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 are definitely feeling like they're victimized over, the, over little things as well as, and then that basically puts the people who are experiencing real genuine traumas in harm's way and feeling like they can't say anything because it's so watered down at this point. So it's really doing a disservice for the times when it it does matter. And we do need to go in there and protect people. And I, you know, I'm a a, a trauma uh, recovery specialist and I've worked with 
groups of, of women for, gosh, like literally I worked in like a, an agency that only worked with sexual trauma survivors for three years. And then that's what my dissertation was on. And then I continued to work in that population. And these women, we talked about the Me Too movement when it first sort of came to my last jurisdiction in the Cayman Islands. And you would be surprised in a group of, you know, sexually assaulted and abused women they did not like the Me Too movement because it trivialized what they actually went through. Right, right, because right. What's the whole they victimization to, thing where it's trendy now? Ex- right. Exactly. Some of the, the statements that they read on Facebook were very minor, petty like things. Like a cat call or something. Yeah. And I'm not trying to say that that person right. didn't have a right to be right, offended right, by right. that, but... That was the focus. And then they were just flooded with all of these women's stories. And then they felt pressure like they had to do it. And they're like, I don't want to announce to the world that I had this happen to me. I'm very happy keeping it personal and working on it in a way that's healthy in therapy. And so it had this weird effect on people who had real trauma. Like, I don't want to say real, but you know what I mean? Like real intense and severe traumas. And I think a lot of those women never even thought about the effects that that would have on people who endured severe gang rapes and, you know, right, major trivial- family abuse. They they're not interested in, they're interested in being victims. I mean, when you, when you have like an idea, like, it's really cool to be a victim. I want to be a victim. How do I, how do I become a victim? Let's look to the, to my life and see where I might possibly be a victim. I found it. And now I'm going to put this on like a jacket and yell to the world that I'm a victim. And it affects people who've hmm. actually been uh, victims. So, I would even say that they may not talk to themselves in that way, but they would definitely be defensive about taking responsibility for the situation that they found themselves in. The amount of times I have to talk to women about, okay, so you were catcalled or whatever, um, or someone at the office said something to you that you felt was sexualized, but you have a shirt that exposes almost your nipples and a skirt that is, you know, up your thigh and you don't expect someone to look at you like you're sexy. Yeah. I I haven't, I haven't worked in an office in a long time. Uh, but when I did, um, it was kind of like what you just mentioned now. It's, it seems like it's like I'm going to a club or a party. And there's a lot of well, a lot of attempts yeah. of like, hey, how's it going? And this indirect kind of like flirting. And because I did not take part in that, uh, some of them were even offended that I wasn't interested in that kind of stuff. And I was just really there to work. Mm-hmm. And so. That is the interesting cognitive dissonance, right? That you see. It's like you're damned if you do and you're damned if you're, you don't. Because women want to be desired. Right. Uh, they just want to be able to control it. Exactly. That's a good and point. so. I don't, I don't, I don't say that, you know, it's, you're asking for it. I'm not saying you're asking for that, but what I tell women is that if you're going to choose to, uh, if you're going to have the freedom to wear whatever you want and it's going to be sexy, you better have the skills to turn down, shut down and block the reactions you're going to get. Right. Like for example, no one has a right to rob me. Okay, that's that's in the laws. There's no excuse for that. But I could walk uh, to a very disenfranchised part of, of the country, like a really poor neighborhood, with a bag of diamonds in a Ziploc bag. 
right? And no one technically has a right to rob me, but the chances of someone robbing me are probably high. And that's that's something that Absolutely. a lot of people do not want to come to terms with. They want to say that that's that's the same thing you just said earlier. Like, uh, what you think uh, we're, we're asking for it, and it's it's not. It's a lot more complex than that. So, I, I'm always the the one woman at these conferences, and you know, I since I'm a victim's advocate, I'm always in these trainings, and they do these weird exercises, which I think they're really cool exercises. I just don't like the moderators, the facilitators. So they'll have the whole group of people. Let's say there's 50 people stand at the front of the room, and they say, "Here's a statement." Um, she asked for it. Here's a scenario. She asked for it. Agree or disagree. Stand on this side if you agree. Wow. Stand on that side that if you disagree. Like and it'll be me. Oh, yeah. It'll be me and like three men <laughs> on this side. And then they're like, well, you better defend why you're standing on that side of the room. And so they're shaming us for our opinion. And then we say our opinion, which is totally logical. And then they will just berate you for being a victim shamer because, and, especially and all because that sort of stuff. Especially because you, uh, you, you uh, claim membership in the female. So. <laughs> right. I must have internalized misogyny or something. Right, right. You must be a, a, a female hater somehow. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, but yeah, no, that's a, it's a very strange thing as a, as a, as a man. Like I said, I haven't been in the office for a while, but when I, when I did work, I felt uncomfortable. I almost felt pressured to find someone desirable and hopefully there won't be anything uh, wrong about it. But for the most part, I just put my sunglasses on my earphones and I would, uh, and I'm a software engineer by trade. And so I just code all day and I wouldn't, you know, right. and, uh, but yeah, you definitely have females, uh, trying to approach me, get my attention. And I did not give them attention mm -hmm. and they were pretty angry. And, uh, so. mm -hmm. yeah, no, I believe it. I've seen that too. Now, just to clarify, I didn't say that I, thought that she asked for it. I stood in the middle of the room, which was kind of like maybe or neutral right. zone. But I do a lot of work with sexual harassment. I do trainings for big right. companies. And, and just to say, and I don't think anybody ever mm -hmm. thinks that someone's asking for it. But I think that's a false option. It's not that you're asking for it, but that you're putting yourself in a situation that even though you're not asking for it, it's going to be forced upon you. So I think it's kind of like a false option that they put you in so they could demonize you. It's so there you go. Right. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I think it's more about protection and prevention than anything and each of us taking responsibility to avoid all of these horrible things from happening to us. Now someone can bust into your house and assault you in the middle of the night totally randomly, right? And you have no responsibility for right. that. I mean, unless you like left your door unlocked you had your windows open and you were walking around naked, you might say, oh, God, I can't believe I did that. Maybe I need to lock my doors, put a burglar alarm system in. Yeah. Right, exactly. So it's the same mentality of just how can you try your best to keep yourself safe? And if you decide to you know, go out by yourself at 2 o'clock in the morning and walk down the street, then, you know, one, you may want to cover up, but two, you know, if something happens to you, you're at least going to, you're going to still call the police and get them arrested but you're going to say, I maybe I shouldn't have gone out at 2 a.m. and walked down the street by myself. Right. I mean, here in San Francisco, people uh, break into cars all the time. It's a really big problem. And uh, we're told to take our valuables out of sight from the window. And, uh, you know, if I leave it there and someone breaks in and takes it from me, it's not that I was asking for it per se, but I wasn't being precautious. And I put myself in a situation where there was a risk of that. And I, and I, and I feel that 
people should understand that. It has nothing to do whether you're a female or a male, whether it's about desirability or, or money or value. It has nothing to do with that. It's just a logical construct that is universal and relevant in any situation where there's risk and valuables to be lost. Right. So we live in such a litigious society, basically, uh, this time that we live in, that people are so afraid. They're so afraid of getting into trouble that they're erring on the side of avoidance. They're erring on the side of deflecting responsibility and accountability. And so it's really doing us a disservice because human beings are not they're not responsible. They're not, uh, you know, functioning properly to their potential. And so being, we don't even have like healthy authorities necessarily to supervise that. So it's a really messed up system. And, and I'm trying to do my part to, to help people if they're willing. So I really, I don't target um, clients that I'm not trying to change anybody's mind. I basically just say what I have to say and stand on the soapboxes that I do and whoever hears it or sees it, for it and it re- right. yeah they're re- they're resonating with it on some level and they're questioning and then they seek me out that's the beauty of social media we talk a, a lot about the bad things but there's a lot of good things as well and and so now instead of you know being very passive in my career um, I, I mean, I'm able to, to basically do what matters to me. And then the clients are just coming to me. I'm attracting them because of what I stand for. And so to me, that, that makes it much more effective work because not only do they know what they're getting into, because usually people will just end up in a therapist's office that they have no clue who they are. The, the therapist never shares their values. They're just sort of regurgitating right. book information to them. <laughs> and so then they're, they're leaving the office and thinking, oh, my God, I can't believe that person does this or that or whatever in their mind, maybe. But they're never actually sharing their, their, their real, genuine um, thoughts of, of, of what they're doing and, and not directing them to correct the things that they're doing wrong that are leading them down an unhealthy road. So it's, it's much, it's, to me, it's much better work, uh, to have voluntary people that are pretty high functioning and choosing to make those changes for themselves. And where can people find out more about your services? My website is drtaylorburrows.com. So it's, it's ES, which people get confused sometimes. And Twitter is a great way to reach out to me. It's at taylorburrows or Instagram, uh, or they can find me on Facebook as well. It's all basically the same handle, at Taylor Burroughs. Okay, thank you for joining us on the show, Dr. Burroughs. Thank you. Have, I had a great time. <laughs> me too. Thank you. Bye. <laughs>